Welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we call out the buffoonery of the blob in hopes of bringing you, the listener, on board the sanity train so we can all promote a new common sense foreign policy in America. Today, I am joined with by my colleague, Daniel Larson, Barbara Bullen is still out, and we will be interviewing Mary Dujak, Emory University law professor and co-editor of Making the Forever War, Marilyn Young on the culture and politics of American war. But before we get to Mary, we'd like to talk headlines. It's officially the dog days of summer, and it's easy to wander off physically, if not mentally, from the grind of the foreign policy, national security news cycle. So it's easy to let things get by without notice. So Dan and I have come to the table with two headlines each that could have easily slipped under the radar, but shouldn't. So I'll start off first. This one is pretty inside baseball, but illustrative of the Beltway bureaucracy love affair. According to Politico on August 2nd, the Biden National Security Council has increased the number of staffers to 400 the first time it has seen this level since the last Democratic presidency under Obama and up to 70 more staff than Trump had. Since its inception in 1947 under Harry Truman, the function of the council has been to advise and assist the president on national security and foreign policies. The council also serves as the president's principal arm for coordinating these policies among various government agencies and includes as its principals the vice president and cabinet members and is advised by the national security advisor, that post now held by Jake Sullivan, the DNI, and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There are directorates and other advisors and staffs, which balloons this total amount out to a layer of bureaucracy, which is supposed to coordinate policy across all the other agencies. But seems to me that this is the primary policy shop for foreign policy and national security, rendering a lot of what goes on in the policy departments of the State Department, Pentagon, CIA, and Homeland Security a bit superfluous. So what do you think, Dan? Um, is 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 more better here? I well, I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, the, there's been a push to streamline the NSC for a long time, uh, and I, I don't really see the purpose in, in expanding it out again. Uh, this it seems to me this leads to a lot of, of bloat, a lot of duplication of effort. Uh, I, I don't see how it can make for an efficient policy process. I know under Trump, especially under Bolton. Uh, he, he took uh, sort of a, a chainsaw to the place, uh, not so much uh, to make it more efficient, but simply so that he could make it uh, more according to his own designs. And so, I, you know, that that's clearly not desirable either. Uh, but but simply uh, piling on uh, dozens and dozens more staffers, I, I think, is a mistake. It's 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 creating too much uh, too much clutter, and and I don't right. think uh, it's going to produce significantly better or more substantive policy decisions. Uh, It's just going to to make everything slower uh, without improving any of the quality. And so uh, one thing to to consider is the reason that we we have this ballooning National Security Council is that our foreign policy tries to do far more than it needs to be doing. Uh, And and it tries to, to cover every possible angle. Uh, and and I, I think if, if anything, over the last year and a half, we should have learned that we need to, to focus on, on priorities and to, to make uh, certain areas of national security 
bigger priorities than they have been, uh, pandemic preparedness, for instance, uh, and, and to, to stop trying to micromanage so much of the planet as we have done. Uh, so the, you wouldn't need uh, so many people uh, on all of these different desks if uh, we weren't trying to do so much. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think aside from priorities, we should be focusing on strategy. And I think the problem here is there, whether it's Republican or Democratic administrations, there is no strategy for foreign policy, no overarching. I mean, we have the national security, uh, what's it called? It's a national security policy, or there's a there's a, a paper that comes out you know, every four years that sort of dictates what that administration's national security posture is going to be. But other than that, there's not, there's really nothing tangible. And so the Republicans, you know, under Trump, for example, think, well, getting rid of the bureaucracy will somehow make the policy more effective. And then the Democrats come in and say, adding directorates and adding layers upon layers of different, you know, uh, fields of uh, focus is going to somehow make that policy better. Uh, but the problem is, is that there's just no strategy. So just adding people and adding directorates to me that, like you said, clutters up, you know, the number of reports and task forces and meetings um, and that never really create a, a situation in which there's accountability for bad policy because everybody can start pointing fingers. And, you know, 400 people in the National Security Council, to me, that just that's bloat. And I, I appreciate that maybe Trump tried to do things better, but like you point out, it was for different reasons why he wanted to consolidate that council, have everything sort of in his little inner circle. And we know what, what happened there. When your inner circle is a bunch of jerks who don't really know what they're doing, that doesn't help either. But I think this is a classic example of people inside the Beltway believing that bureaucracy is good and um and that adding and in in, in in this is this is borne out in the Politico article. There is there is no sense of, of, of criticism here. It's just that somehow that the Biden administration adding you know, up to 400 people, the, the point at which hadn't been matched since the Obama administration is a good thing, that it, it proves that he's doing things. And to me, it just proves that he doesn't really have a strategy. So this is this is the next best thing. And let's look at the Obama administration. Would, it, would anybody listening to this podcast think that the Obama administration was some shining example of great foreign policy and national security? No. So clearly adding 50 to 70 more people in this shop um, isn't really necessarily going to result in um, improvements. You know, it actually has to be strategy. Right. I, yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, turning to my uh, first headline or my first uh, item, uh, I, I came across this reading uh, the results from a new University of Maryland critical issues poll uh, that was uh, put out by Shipley Tilhami. Uh, and he, uh, it, the poll mostly focused on attitudes about Biden's handling of Gaza and attitudes about the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, but they also snuck in a very interesting question that nobody actually ever thinks to ask. And they asked the, the respondents uh, if they think that Iran has nuclear weapons and if they think that Israel does. And the, the kind of depressing results that came back from that is that more people in the country uh, think that Iran has nuclear weapons when they don't uh, than know that Israel does have them, uh, which they've had for decades. Right. And so it's, uh, 
it's a measure, I think, uh, and, and uh, we, we've talked about this uh, off the show and, and uh, on Twitter, it's a measure of the, the misinformation uh, that has been put out about Iran's nuclear program for the last 10, 15 years, uh, where there's this constant drumbeat saying, oh, they're trying to get a nuke, they're trying to get a nuke. And so in a way, it sort of makes sense that a lot of people in the public uh, conclude that Iran must already have them by now uh, because they've been hearing about it for so long. And, and if you're not following it closely, uh, and if you're listening to, especially if you're listening to sort of propaganda sources uh, for your information, uh, you're going to come away with a very distorted picture of what's going on in the Middle East. <clears throat> and, and on the flip side, Israel's nuclear arsenal, uh, which is uh, uh, dozens of uh, deployed weapons uh, with, with uh, the material to make hundreds more, uh, never gets mentioned uh, by our government, by their government. Uh, it, it's an open secret that they have them. Everyone knows it, but everyone pretends not to know it uh, for, for this sort of ridiculous uh, reason of keeping ambiguity about it. Right. Uh, when, when the, I, I don't, and I'm not really sure what purpose is served by that ambiguity when it's, when it's obvious to everyone that they have them. Um, but the, the, the the startling thing about this result is that only half of Americans know that, even though it's an open secret, um, simply because it's never talked about and there's no emphasis placed on it. Um, so, you know, if you were to ask the average person in the street uh, who has the rogue nuclear weapons program in the Middle East, uh, you would get the, the wrong answer. Uh, when, when Iran has not had a nuclear weapons program in, in something like 18 years, and that's according to our own intelligence services, uh, people still somehow come away with the idea that they have nuclear weapons right now. Uh, and so it's, it's a very discouraging result because it suggests that there's, there is no uh, controlling the quality of information that people are getting. There's no uh, basically getting the, the facts right on these issues doesn't seem to make any difference in terms of public opinion. Right. And I, I blame the, the, the news media for that. I mean, particularly on the no. issue of the Israeli nukes, because, yeah, I, I understand and I, I don't agree with it, but I understand government officials, whether they be Israeli or American, kind of uh, cleaving to this ambiguity and not talking about the, the nuclear weapons that Israel has and, and their uh, capacity to make more openly. But somehow that's bled into the journalistic coverage of it. And there's no mm -hmm. mandate on journalists to not talk about Israel's nukes. So right. A, they don't, or B, when they do mention them, it is couched in such like frustrated, you know, awkward language. It's like as though that right. they, they, their hands are behind their backs and their mouths are half shut, you know, so it's just sort of blurted out, you know, and buried into a story. And so, yeah, I don't blame American people who this is not their focus of their everyday lives is paying attention uh, to these issues, uh, the, that this narrative has been created of Israel, the weak I Israel, the beleaguered Israel, who is facing this, you know, Iranian threat, uh, a nuclear threat. And, um, that's worked very well for them because, uh, we have plenty of people in this country who hold the purse strings in Congress who believe in that narrative. They feed that narrative. And every time there's an issue in which uh, Israel wants more weapons and they want to maintain this, this qualitative military edge 
or that there's this issue of getting back into the nuclear deal. They they bring up this narrative of, you know, wow, uh, Israel is at threat of its neighbors, particularly Iran. Uh, it's up to us to give them more weapons. It's up to us right. to give them more money. And if, if it was really open, how um, technologically uh, advanced Iran was in terms of, I mean, Israel was with its weaponry, its nuclear weapons, its ability to defend itself. I think more most Americans would be like, you know, they could take care of themselves. I think we need to take care of ourselves here back at home. So it's a narrative that that serves a certain agenda, uh, but it doesn't serve transparency clearly. Yeah, definitely. And well, and we saw that in just uh, in a recent argument that Dennis Ross made in Bloomberg. Uh, where he was talking about how we need to give Israel a bigger bomb yeah. uh, in order to threaten Iran with an attack as a, as a way of, quote-unquote, deterring Iran from pursuing nuclear weapons. When Israel is the one that has the nuclear weapons, uh, they already have bombs that are plenty big. Uh, that, you know, they have the biggest ones of all. Uh, and so the, the idea that we would need to give them even more as a way to threaten an attack on Iran uh, was, was just crazy. Uh, but, but again, uh, in his argument, Israel's nuclear arsenal never comes up. It's never even mentioned. Right, right. right. And, and, this, and, and speaking of the coverage, well, one of the things that always bothers me, uh, whenever, they, whenever there's a report on Israeli government's warnings about Iran's nuclear program, is that there is no acknowledgement that Israel is not a member of the non-proliferation treaty, while Iran is. So the, the state that has the nuclear weapons uh, is outside of that treaty. The one that's in the treaty is not pursuing those weapons and doesn't even have the means to build them right now. But all of the focus is on the state that's in the NPT, and there's no focus, there's no attention paid to the one that has the illegal nukes. Right. So you know, it's it, it's a, a clear bias, uh, you know, which we're used to seeing. But it's it, it's such a distortion, and and you see how it affects public opinion right. Right. Uh, through through these poll results. Well, speaking about bombs and um, airstrikes, one of my 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 second headline I'd like to share is on Daniel Hale, who was um, sentenced to 45 months in prison last week uh, in uh, a federal court in Alexandria, Virginia. He's a former Air Force guy who uh, got a job as an intelligent contractor after his time in Afghanistan, who had leaked some documents about our, our airstrikes, our drone strikes, our drone war during the administration, the Obama administration, and uh, leaked them to Jeremy Scahill, who wrote about it and basically served as a, you know, a, a public service, you know, for us to understand how these drone strikes were being committed and and how they were extrajudicially engaging in uh, lethal attacks against uh, supposed terrorists and how they were resulting in massive civilian casualties, among other things. And uh, his lawyers tried their best uh, to argue that the Espionage Act did not apply to him, but the federal government successfully won the case against him uh, under the Espionage Act, and he is going to prison. So my, you know, I, you know, I would like to read the the first part of this Washington Post story that came out on July 27th, which basically says that Daniel Hale was at an anti-war conference in D.C. in 2013, which I believe I was there. I think it was the one that was sponsored by Code Pink. 
And he recalls that a man recounted that two family members had been killed in a U.S. drone strike. The Yemeni man, through tears, said his relatives had been trying to encourage young men to leave al-Qaeda. Hale then realized he had watched the fatal attack from a base in Afghanistan while he was in the war. At the time, he and his colleagues in Air Force Intelligence viewed it as a success. Now he was horrified. And he told the judge that it was those experiences, uh, knowing uh, that the the, uh, actions that he had taken during the Air Force and that his country had been taken uh, had been resulting in these civilian attacks. And at one point, one of the, I believe one of the leaked documents was that 90% of the uh, drone strikes had resulted in civilian deaths or something to that effect. Very uh, distressing to him. But the judge, obviously, he didn't get the nine years that the Justice Department had recommended. And 45 months is, is terrible, but it's not, you know, life. But still, I mean, this is this all goes to the fact that it's the whistleblowers who were basically truth telling all of the war crimes of the U.S. government during these wars are the only ones that are going to prison after 9-11. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's an injustice. Uh, uh, Hale uh, should not have been convicted on these charges. He should not have been sentenced uh, to all these years. Uh, and it it is an outrage, especially when he is doing a public service and calling attention to uh, the, the the devastation that the drone war is wreaking on uh, the countries where it's being carried out. And, it, and it's still ongoing. Uh, we, you know, I think people uh, during the Trump years uh, tended to lose track of it or, or tended to forget it when it was actually ramping up. Uh, and, and even now under Biden, uh, there are uh, new uh, drone strikes and airstrikes being carried out uh, in, in a continuation of this policy, uh, there was just another one in Somalia uh, not that long ago uh, that prompted some outcry from Congress uh, because the, the the legal authorization for our strikes in Somalia is so sketchy and 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 such a, an abuse of the 2001 authorization. Uh, and, and so so Hale is calling attention to this uh, this policy that is not actually contributing. Uh, to U.S. security anyway. It's, it's mostly just slaughtering people uh, in these uh, countries in Yemen and Somalia, uh, people that aren't any threat to us, that uh, have no intention of being a threat to us. Uh, it's it's uh, an abhorrent policy, and it's and it's good that he's shown he's shown a light on it because uh, for for many, uh, well, for for two decades now, it has gone uh, essentially under the radar. Uh, with with very little pushback, with very little uh, effective oversight from Congress, and I, I'm I hope that his case uh, forces people to pay more attention to it. Yeah, yeah. There's so much going on here, Dan. I mean, uh, other than the issue of the Espionage Act being abused in order to go after whistleblowers and journalists, you know, we know that. Uh, you know, Julian Assange is still being pursued by the Justice Department in the Biden administration under the Espionage Act. There's the whole issue of we sent these kids basically over to Afghanistan and Iraq and made them do things, basically. And anybody can yell at me and say, hey, they are volunteers for their country. But this was a new kind of war in which we were the engaging in drone strikes in which we afforded these guys 
uh, and women a distance from the killings. And then they come back with all sorts of PTSD. We know this, it's all on the record in terms of these Air Force um, pilots who were doing the drone strikes from like even Nevada, for example, uh, have sustained post-traumatic stress disorder. And he told, uh, Daniel Hale told the judge, you know, that he, here's another passage from the piece. He recalled in a letter to the judge learning after one drone strike on a car that a small child had been killed and another seriously injured. He wondered whether any of the other strikes he had helped carry out had killed innocent civilians deemed quote, enemy, enemy combatants, unquote, by virtue of being male or of military age. And he says, this is a direct quote, you had to kill part of your conscience to keep doing your job. So the, the, by the time he went and he took this contracting uh, position for a uh, contract, you know, and we have thousands of contractors doing intelligence, uh, he, you know, he had already been pretty wounded by what he experienced and disgusted with what he had participated in. And here he wanted to make things right. And, um, you know, his lawyers are like the Espionage Act is not it, it was it was put in place to keep other countries uh, or for people working with other countries to defeat us. It wasn't put in place so that people could um, serve as, uh, it, it, you know, to, to open up, you know, information to their own countrymen about what their government was doing in and, you know, um, in their own name. Uh, but. I don't know, the judge didn't buy it. And uh, this, you know, journalists, you know, he wasn't a journalist, but journalists should be very uh, uh, living in fear right now of, of what they're writing and how they're getting their information and sourcing because they cross a line and the government wants to slap an espionage charge on them. This is all like moving towards setting precedents as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very chilling. It's very worrisome. Uh, because if if they can lock him up for revealing it, then uh, what you know soon there will be the argument that you can lock somebody up for publishing it for publishing it, and and that's uh, obviously that's a major threat to a free press uh, if that if things go that way, and so we you know we have to be on guard against that. Uh, uh, in addition to to trying to get these people out, uh, and 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 honestly, Hale I mean Hale should be pardoned. He should be freed. Uh, it's it's preposterous that he's going to jail for revealing the crimes of others or, or revealing crimes of policy uh, when it's it's higher ups who ought to be answering for those right. crimes uh, and and of course as you said uh, it, it's only the people at the bottom the only the people who are speaking out about it that are paying any price at all uh, we we have no accountability otherwise. Uh, uh, moving on to another aspect of the forever war uh, for my uh, other item uh, is the decision or the announcement uh, from the U.S. and Iraqi governments that uh, all combat forces will be removed from Iraq by the end of the year. And they will achieve this simply by relabeling the troops that are there as trainers and advisors. They will no longer officially be combat forces, so everything's fine uh, as far as the government's concerned. Uh, of course, as we know, uh, their continued presence in Iraq is still viewed as unacceptable uh, by many Iraqi militias uh, and, and by many ordinary Iraqis uh, who want them out. And so the fact that they're being called uh, trainers and advisors rather than combat forces won't stop them from being attacked. Uh, 
getting them out of Iraq uh, is the, the only real solution to avoid further attacks from these militias and to avoid further conflict. Uh, but we're going to keep pretending, uh, we're going to engage in this pretense that they're not combat forces uh, simply so that Biden can declare victory and say that he's withdrawn the U.S. from combat in Iraq uh, when, in fact, uh, he has not. Yeah. And I mean, on, on a certain level, and people have reported this, this helps the uh, prime minister, Kadmi, Kadimi, uh, in Kadimi, Iraq, yeah. because mm-hmm. he knows that his military cannot has cannot defend itself from uh, the remaining uh, ISIS. And there have been bombings there uh, from the militias that have gotten out of hand. So he he needs us there. And, you know, I and I and I recognize that. But his country, the people of his country don't want us there. So this allows, you know, this sort of relabeling uh, to advise and assist as opposed to combat uh, allows us to stay. But under this under under this new rubric um, for his benefit. Uh, and but I don't think that that's sustainable because the country that doesn't want us there. The rest of the people, the parliament has already voted to kick us out. And let's let's face it, our very presence is what is attracting the violence, particularly from these so-called Iranian-backed militias. And so, and and then for his part, Biden, like you said, wants to say that we are getting out or ending yet another forever war but it's keeping the same number of troops in there just under a different label. So we're, we're talking about a, a political sort of shell game going on, but it doesn't change uh, the rules of the game or the situation. Uh, we're still there. We're still um, a magnet for violence and uh, our troops are still in harm's way. And, and let's face it, we're seeing these bombings. We're seeing ISIS gain some uh, momentum in recent in recent weeks. So this isn't this isn't fair to the Iraqi people either. Our guest today is Professor Mary Dujak. She is the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Law at Emory University and the author of Cold War, Civil Rights, Race, and the Image of American Democracy, and Wartime, an Idea, Its History, Its Consequences, among several others. She's also co-editor, along with Mark Bradley, of a new volume of essays by the historian Marilyn Young called Making the Forever War, Marilyn B. Young on the Culture and Politics of American Militarism. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, we appreciate it. Uh, and I, I enjoyed uh, the book very much, uh, the, the book of essays, uh, and uh, the, the book just came out earlier this summer. Uh, uh, what does Marilyn Young have to teach us about uh, U.S. foreign policy and the forever war uh, in the essays that you uh, put together? Well, um, let me uh, let me say a word about you know why why we did this book because you know of course there's a lot being written about the forever war and and so what do we have to gain from you know these essays which frankly were written over over the course of especially you know, the last couple of decades of her career. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I actually started thinking about it at her funeral um, because Marilyn had been sending me stuff. Um, and we were often talking about the forever war. We were both writing about it in different ways. And we would have these long, intense conversations. And she would, she would send me stuff, um, her essays, as a way of telling me why I had to read this or that or the other thing. 
Um, and um, these essays were mind-blowing and wonderful, and they were really sort of written across time. Um, so, uh, so one essay was written for an Italian volume on Stephen Crane, uh, The Red Badge of Courage. Um, and and it, it basically, you know, runs through from, um, you know, Civil War forward, um, how war memory is shaped and constrained, enabling the forgetting of war's carnage, um, enabling this narrative of the glorification of war, um, which Marilyn thought of it as just being an anathema that you could glorify a past of uh, killing people, especially killing civilians in war zones, which is a principal feature of any war, right? Um, so, so she would send me these essays because I had to read them and I knew that they were scattered all over the place in collections of essays and in different journals and other people wouldn't know about them. Um, but really also it, it formed a body of work um, that pulled together is bigger than any particular piece. And so essentially, this is Marilyn's last book in, in, in so many ways. It's, it's a collection of the writings that help us understand the forever war um, that she wrote over decades and that just happened to appear in, in, in journals and essays. And uh, one of the um, really crucial contributions, um, and this is especially emphasized in the second half of the book, um, is, is how the culture of war enables the forever war. And, and I have to say, having listening to, listened to some of your podcasts and with obvious exasperation, the question gets asked, you know, how could we be in these wars all the time and the American people, well, mostly you talk about Congress, right? Why isn't Congress declaring this? And I would say Congress isn't declaring it because the American people don't care and so there's no electoral advantage. So then Marilyn is really getting at the problem of um, how is it that there's no war politics? You know, on some level, there's not a war politics or an anti-war politics unless someone is running, for example, on 9-11 to get reelected, um, which, which happened. Um, but, um, but, but why is there no domestic political engagement, which would then inform Congress, presumably, right? So that there's no political engagement really for or against the forever war, there's just complete total apathy. So I, I think that a missing piece in a lot of the work um, uh, on uh, in a lot of the policy discussions about the forever war um, is this culture piece. Um, and you know, culture is thought of as being sort of messy humanities. <laughs> Why should that? We can't kind of operationalize it and do do sort of data crunching. Um, but but really, it's the the way that people understand the world that they live in, um, how they, what they choose to pay attention to, what they worry about at night, uh, what informs their electoral choices. Um, so, so basically the, the, the American culture um, and our understandings of who we are as a nation and what our nation does in the world, erasing out either the forever war as a whole or at least what exactly the experience of the forever war is. Now, 
and just tell me if I'm talking too long and you want to intervene. But but one of the, the important um, features of American war, um, in, especially in the aftermath of World War II, now some people would say post-Vietnam, there's more draft. There's no draft and that's what's driving it all. And that of course is important, but the absence of a draft builds upon a pre-existing problem in terms of the how the American understanding of war is framed. It's not a problem for American people who are safe, uh, but it's a, it's a problem in terms of the, um, the awareness of war and what war is and what American war does. And, and that's that American war is far away. Uh, the United States goes to war in other countries. And so the, the, the um, civilian experience of war which is a crucial part of American war. Think of the war in Korea, right? Uh, the, the massive, uh, most massive amount of death was of civilians um, in North and South Korea. Um, uh, something that's not mourned either by Americans or at the War Memorial of Korea in South Korea, right? It's all about the soldiers, that's important, um, but that's not the principal um, uh, population that uh, experiences the carnage of war when it's in your own territory. So, so, um, so this creates this um, um, failure to understand, which is then um, filled in by war narratives and this sort of construction of the idea of heroism, the zeroing in on the actual heroism of some American soldiers, the actual sacrifice of some of them, um, but, you know, even with regard to the memory of soldiers of war, Marilyn um, draws upon um, uh, uh, the scholarship of Linderman, I'm forgetting his first name, um, who, who, who argues that, you know, in the, in the Civil War and later wars, essentially, soldiers are, are is, learn that they have to suppress their own understanding of the terrible experience that they, that they had in order to kind of assimilate into an American culture for whom, for example, World War II was heroic, right? So watching your comrades drowned in a failed river crossing may be one's own experience, but that's not what people at home want to hear, right? They want to hear about how wonderful and heroic it was when you won that medal. Um, and, and so that's, a, so there's, the culture of war is composed, it has to do with the, the sort of failure of memory, both the forgetting and the never understanding in the first place. And then the construction of narratives of war, often as we saw with 9-11 for political advantage, um, the sort of coming together around certain narratives because to oppose the narrative means you're not with the sort of program of American culture and for Congress that can have electoral ramifications. So, so basically culture is a key feature of what produces the forever war. And that's what we get out of Marilyn's work in the last um, uh, couple decades of her life. And that's what this book I think is especially helpful with. I, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and then this gets at the, that theme of, of sanitizing warfare uh, that, that, you, that she talks about in her essays and that, that you talk about uh, in the introduction. Um, you also wrote in the introduction about uh, how ongoing war is enabled by the isolation of American civilians from its violence, 
which which comes back to what you were just saying. Uh, and we see that most especially today in the drone war, uh, where uh, not only are the victims largely invisible when they're even acknowledged, but often they're not even acknowledged. And, and the civilians are often classed as uh, enemy combatants uh, simply for, for purposes of, of selling it to the public. Uh, and then we saw that with uh, uh, Daniel Hale's uh, recent uh, sentencing uh, over the leaks that he uh, did of documents that reveal that. Um, uh, and again, the case of the drone war, it's not so much a case of forgetting war as, as never having been aware of it in the first place, right? A absolutely. And if I can throw in a site to um, a sure. really uh, uh, important um, recent work by political scientist Sarah Shoker um, about how gender essentially becomes a technology of war um, in the context of drone war as essentially um, uh, military age males are presumed to be um, uh, military combatants. And so that ends up affecting even how the casualties of war are tallied up and, um, and classified. Um, so, so yes, there are all sorts of difficulties um, from the contemporary drone war, most obviously for the populations that are subject to it. Um, but it, it further creates this sort of pro problem of invisibility, it extends it um, and it, it makes it also, it's sort of built into the law of armed conflict, but that's another story. Um, that that um, uh, the the fact that American soldiers aren't at risk um, makes it less likely to be a war, according to Hal Coe, um, Obama's uh, uh, State Department legal advisor. And so, therefore, um, it's less likely to uh, trigger the War Powers Resolution, you know, for whatever that's still worth, right? So, so. Um, Drone war, as Marilyn um, recognized and understood, um, uh, creates another layer that undermines the ability of the American people to have any purchase at all on the fact that our country in our name is sending force, whether it's robots or humans, to other countries, killing people as a way of carrying out policy. So we never have the conversation should death be the method of achieving American policy? I mean, <laughs> this is something that should be discussed and it should be discussed whether or not the death that's being produced by the policy choices is necessarily Americans because troops are used in the war zone or whether it's other people. We should care as much, I would think, just as a moral matter um, about the death of any human, um, and and we aren't thinking or talking about it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Kelly, go ahead. Mary, thank you so much for coming on. It's, this is a great conversation. I have all these questions in my mind, and I've scribbled some down, but you've already sort of talked about a couple of them. But I would like to go back to the experience of the soldier. And I'm wondering if Marilyn, and, and in yourself as well, had been somewhat uh, surprised or uh, frustrated after, you know, the Vietnam War, there did seem to be an outpouring of acknowledgement about the soldiers, um, their experiences, what they brought home. PTSD was first diagnosed, the mental health issues, the, you know, all of that, the, the physical 
uh, maladies, uh, Agent Orange included, there seemed to be an acknowledgement that, um, and this is after the protests and beyond, that uh, we had put you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers into harm's way and they have been, you know, had been wounded for life. And there seemed to be um, a national reckoning with that. But by the time the Persian Gulf War came around, it did seem that there was some collective amnesia about it. And I remember myself as a very young reporter at the time being really gobsmacked by the fact that these soldiers were coming back with undiagnosed illnesses, for example, and that they were raiding maybe little columns in the newspaper about it. And this went on for years. So by the time we were sending troops over to Iraq, it, it seemed like Vietnam was so far in the rear view that all of the, that, that sort of reckoning that we had as a nation about how we treat our veterans, whether we should put these guys and gals in harm's way, seemed to go out the window. Was, were, was Mary like frustrated or um, how did she... I don't, you know, how did she reconcile that? Uh, yeah. Well, let me say, and this is I'm starting by not directly answering your question, but I'll come back to it. So Marilyn actually, and I went through her papers um, when it, her, just, it's a small collection at NYU and, and that helped me to see what I already knew, which was she, she was deeply involved in anti-war protests during the Vietnam War era itself um, as one of the sort of younger intellectuals as compared with some of the um, the other important figures at that time. And um, and so she was very um, passionate and involved in the anti-war left. Um, and I think that that is, although she had great interest and sympathy and was an interest in the experience of soldiers in Vietnam and in other wars, and what happened to them. Um, she was also deeply, if or more so, um, interested in what was happening um, in the countries where American force was deployed. And so I think that's where her attention um, was especially. Um, and um, so even, you know, and here I'm thinking of, of Viet Nguyen's um, nonfiction work, um, uh, Nothing Ever Dies. Um, and the two were um, admired each other, um, although they never met. Um, so, so, you know, the, and, and so the reason so she had such an affinity for his work is because he writes about in his nonfiction work, you know, the conditions in Vietnam and the failure of memory, even in Vietnam. And, um, and, and so the level of death um, in Vietnam just so overwhelms um, the real and important um, suffering um, of, of American soldiers. And so I think that that's what my, at least my sense is of Marilyn's um, particular focus. And, and so what we see more of in her writing, even though that was important and even though she worked with the, the sort of anti-war left, which included veterans um, who uh, who opposed the war, but I don't, um, you know, what with with the the war and its impact, I think she attends more directly to um, how the 
self-revision of memory then essentially has a psychological effect um, as soldiers um, in, you know, the works that she's drawing upon um, come to feel alienated from the culture that they're returning to because their own memory of the war doesn't line up with how the country wants to remember it. So she she writes about that um, uh, really um, importantly. And, um, you know, in The Big Sleep, which was this essay that was published in an Italian volume, um, she writes about um, Oliver Wendell Holmes and how Holmes himself writes during the Civil War that he was injured three times. Um, and really, it's surprising that he survived it. Um, about you know how terrible it was at the time, and then in later years, the memory has become divine, you know. And he says how how um, how uh, wonderful it is when a soldier throws his life away in search of a cause of which, that he doesn't understand. Um, and this is a, my you know poor uh, uh, summary of a, of a Harvard graduation speech, but uh, but but that was what what is, is sort of very prominent across some of her essays is this issue of the, of, of the um, experience of horror um, in war, whether it's one's own or experience of seeing that of others and how it um, is so difficult for many when they come back to a country that, um, that erases it. She, she told me a story about her uncle it's in the intro where she, um, her, her uncle, she kept bothering her uncle when she was a young girl, you know, tell me about the war, tell me about the war and um, about World War II. And, and he finally snaps at her and says, the bombardier's head rolled around the cabin all the way back to base. Now, don't you ever ask me that again. Um, and so again, this is for her, this deeply held, harmful really to him memory that he has to suppress right. because it doesn't line up with how the country wants to remember the World War II experience. And that suppression of memory then helps enable going to war the next time because the cultural kind of uh, common understanding is based on those heroic narratives. She must have been pretty frustrated in the wake of 9-11 where it seemed like the country was reverting back to the heroic narrative of World War II and its you know, view of the wars, whether it be in Afghanistan or the run-up to the Iraq War. And also very frustrating when she heard uh, more hawkish voices making fun of the French or making fun of other Europeans for not going in full throttle into the war effort in Iraq. I remember um, massive um, rebuke by the Republicans. Uh, they were changing French fries to freedom fries. And all I could think of is like, wow, these people had endured World War I, World War II. They've seen their cities firebombed, millions of people dead and starving, where we've had nothing of the same in this country. But I mean, this is this is all of her 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 theories about culture really encapsulated. But it must have been kind of a dark time because she's seeing this play out uh, in real time. A absolutely. Um, Marilyn 
had written an essay, which we didn't put in the volume because there were so many things that we couldn't put in, but she wrote an essay for a collection um, uh, I put together um, called September 11th. Um, you know, it's about sort of the idea of September 11th in history. And um, and she was editing the, the essay as the war in Iraq began. And she built into her revisions a reference to the Bush administration's, as she put it, pure arrogance. Um, so she, she was deeply um, angry um, at the way the understanding of war was essentially manipulated um, to pull people together, uh, you know, for another war. Um, and, you know, and, and there it was a context where um, George Bush, you know, I think of 9-11 as essentially making him the nation's president because, of course, it was the aftermath of the disputed election. And, 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 and people actually came together behind him as the country's leader. Um, and then to have used that moment of national solidarity for the purpose of a war about a lie <laughs> was just um, so mind-boggling and deeply, deeply angered um, Marilyn. Well, and, and uh, it angered a lot of us. I, I know that's true for, for me and it's true for Kelly and, and uh, a lot of us that, have, that were against the war from the start. Uh, and, and speaking of the Iraq War, uh, one of the things that's uh, that I, I still find troubling after all these years is that it was a, a blatantly illegal war under international law, uh, but it, it's very rarely described as a crime uh, here in the U.S. We don't think of it in those terms, or it's not talked about in those terms. It, it is at most referred to as a mistake. Uh, oops, we, we invaded a country. Uh, and so uh, how is it that we can avoid uh, similar uh, crimes in the future when there's nobody held accountable uh, for the last one? Well, you know, um, this is a huge question um, and, and um, really important to ask. And I think that ultimately the fix is, um, and now for some reason I'm spacing out his name, the, um, the, the election um, where the member of Congress who was a war veteran who is a- uh, Max Cleland, I think is who- Max Cleland. Out. Max Cleland is just a, a classic example of what went wrong that basically his heroism and suffering were, um, were, were thrown aside as he was red baited and right. treated as if he was serving Osama bin Laden because of his opposition uh, to going to war. And you know, as long as we have a politics that's fueled by, um, by fakery, by this sense that if it's, it's it, it's like there's a Cold War layer on it in, in, the, in the way that the Cold War affected domestic politics. If you didn't line up with a particular anti-communist line, then you were red baited and then you couldn't survive that electorally, right? And so people found ways to navigate the toxicity of Cold War era electoral politics. Well, we had the same thing after 9-11 and actually I think we've never recovered from it. It's like softened out in a way that people don't pay attention to it, but it's still there. Um, and, and, and so the Max Cleland election is a classic um, example of the way that, um, that members of Congress, you know, and they're willing to lie and make stuff up 
to to red bait a veteran um, who who was highly patriotic um, simply because of his position on on the, on the war. Um, and and it's you know again you know isn't it interesting that you can have this political war culture in a country that actually doesn't experience war itself. And, and of course, it's the failure to understand war, to understand it corporeally, right? To understand what it's like to, as you know, a Korean young girl walking home uh, in, after the Korean War saying that there's so many bodies, she couldn't walk without stepping on them. Um, so that experience of what actually happens in war is so absent for American civilians. And, and just to sort of get it back to Maryland, you know, this is why the culture of war matters to the politics of war. This is not the only contribution that Maryland makes, but, but she is a crucial writer on the culture of the forever war. And if we don't take that culture of dynamics seriously, we can't figure out the politics. Um, and we can't figure out the foreign affairs mistakes um, because when we're involving members of Congress in it, which of course we need to be, um, then we're always building upon uh, this, this sort of culture that limits people's sense of what they feel are their electoral choices if they wanna stay in office. We need people with more courage. Uh, we need people who are willing to say what they think um, and not line up because that's how I'm going to get my contributions lined up and my donors. And that's how I'm going to stay in office forever. Right. And well, and I, I hope we do start getting more of those uh, leaders uh, in Congress and then maybe eventually in the White House uh, who will uh, show that kind of courage. Uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on. We're, we're out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, but uh, our guest has been uh, Professor Mary Dujak, uh, and the book is uh, Making the Forever War, uh, Marilyn B. Young, uh, on the culture and politics of American militarism. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>